Well, good morning, Three Rivers. Um, so today is week three of Pastor Mitch's sabbatical, and they are in Savannah, I think, looking at college options a little bit. So you get me for another week today. Um, and I'm excited about not only me, but some of the other pastors and some other men in our church preaching over the next few weeks and the opportunity to learn together and to grow together and to hear kind of one essential gospel voice together. Um, so we have been we've been studying through Genesis for well over a year now, right, uh, with some some breaks here and there to look at different topics and to look at some different things. And um, as Mitch was headed out, he kind of lined out where the passages were going to be for Genesis um, over the next few weeks. And so we were in Genesis 25 next week. And one of the prerogatives of when he's not here um, we didn't look at it exactly the way, breaking it up. And so we're going to do something different this morning. And we're going to jump back into Genesis next week. Um, but what I want to talk to you about is actually from Psalm 77 this morning. And Psalm 77 answers a question for us. What do you do when you feel like God doesn't hear your prayer? What do you do when you are in a difficult spot? And you cry out to God, and you feel like the skies just are empty. How do you respond in that situation? We're going to look at the life of Asaph, uh, the man who authored Psalm 77, and see what we can learn from that. So if this sermon is not for you, if this message is not for you right now, if that's not your reality on the ground, file it away, because it will be later. Or there's somebody else in your life, in your family, in your um, in your shared life, that it will be for them later. Uh, and, and so maybe that's not your experience right now, but, uh, but this is one of those great passages of Scripture that teaches us how do we process difficulty in a God-honoring way? How do we process emotions in a God-glorifying way? And that's one of the things that I love about the Psalms is that when we go to the Psalms, we can see the experience of men and women who have come before us who... Uh, who have experienced great highs, great lows, difficulties, and yet we can, we can see how they walked with God in those. Um, oftentimes the Psalms give us language and vocabulary to express things that maybe we're feeling and we don't know how to say them. Uh, sometimes the Psalms give us a freedom even to lament things to God um, and, and on behalf of ourselves or others uh, in a God-honoring way. And so I want to look at this passage this morning um, and see what we can learn from it uh, and how we can process difficulty in our own life from it. So I'm just going to start reading and kind of make some observations along the way as we go through Psalm 77, starting in verse 1. Asaph writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So Asaph is in a very difficult situation. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he says it is the day of his trouble. And this is a really kind of vivid description of what's going on in his heart at this point, right? He's, he says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. 
My hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. This is a lot of all night praying. This is a lot of up all night worrying about something. This is a lot of just turmoil in life. And so this morning, whether that turmoil for you has been things like maybe a death in the family, maybe it's been an illness or a loss of a job or a conflict in a relationship, or it's been uh, a long-term sense of struggle for what is the purpose and the meaning of my life. Maybe it's financial trouble. Maybe it's all kinds of things that we experience from time to time. I want this passage to be a guide for us as we think about how do we process those things and how do we follow Jesus um, in the midst of difficulty. Before we jump too far into this, I want to ask a question. What do we know about Asaph? Who is this guy that wrote this passage? What, what is his life situation? Uh, a few things that we learn about Asaph from Scripture. One, he was a Levite. He was a priest. Uh, in First Chronicles 16, we see him appointed by King David as the chief minister to continually lead worship before the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. In First Chronicles 25, we see that he is the leader of temple worship. And so Asaph is... He is a leader of God's people in corporate worship. You might even say he is maybe the Chris Tomlin of his day. There's several uh, psalms that we see throughout Scripture. We're going to look at even a a couple more of them this morning that Asaph has written. So he's not somebody that is new to following God. He's not a new believer. He knows the Scriptures. He knows the history of God's people. He knows how God has interacted with his people in the past. He's been instructed Uh, He knows to pray. He knows how to seek the Lord. And he is sincerely seeking to follow God. And yet he finds himself in a position of great distress and great turmoil in his life. So he says in verse 3 that his thoughts of God don't bring him comfort. In fact, it even brings him more pain. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Asaph has got a couple of problems here when when we... start out in this passage. One is whatever this thing is, this life circumstance that's going on, that he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. Whatever this is, this is a huge issue in his life. And this is causing him a lot of trouble. But the underlying issue is is a little bit deeper and is a little bit bigger. And that is the apparent failure of God to respond to his plea. The apparent failure of God to hear and respond when Asaph cries out to him. And he's got this gnawing feeling underneath that maybe God's not going to come through for me. Maybe God's not going to answer my prayer. And so this this distress opens the door to temptation for him to doubt God's goodness and to disbelieve God. Verse 4, he says, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's thinking about the good old times, the times of closeness that he had with God. He's thinking about how can I go back and recapture this this time of a spiritual high. Verse 6, it says, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So as Asaph mulls this over and thinks about it in his mind, 
he begins to, to come up with more questions. Has God's character changed? I know God was gracious and he was kind and he, he answered my prayer in the past. Has, has something changed with God? Is he a different person now? Is his, his personality changed? Is he, has his attitude toward me changed? And then a second question, do I believe when I don't hear an answer from God? Have I just believed because God has blessed me? Have I believed because things worked out well for me? Or am I willing to search and to look after, to, to follow God even when he is not blessing me in the moment? And I think, just as a side note, as, as, we, as we process these kinds of issues, as we process difficulty in our life, one of the most important ways that we need to process that is in community with other believers. Uh, because there's something that happens in us that, that helps us to gain a greater perspective when we process those things with other believers, when we are able to hear from other people about God's faithfulness and not just to silo up ourselves by ourselves. Amen. Thank you, Miss Georgia. So a, a, couple of, a couple of other observations just about life in general as a believer. When we see this throughout, um, throughout other passages of Scripture as well, when we think that God is unresponsive to our need, that is not always the case. God's apparent, unresponsive to, uh, apparent unresponsive to us is not unusual in the life of a believer. In fact, oftentimes our timelines and God's timelines are not the same. God does things and has plans that are not our plans. And sometimes that, that plan is part of his discipline of us, his training of us. And when you hear discipline, don't think punishment. Think training and righteousness. Um, sometimes that, that is part of his plan for growing us into the image of Christ. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen is a passage that we think about when we think about the temptation to sin. But it applies in this case as well. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation will provide a way of escape. But the, the first part of that, no temptation has seized you but what is common to man, tells us that all of us are tempted in a lot of different ways. And maybe one of those ways that we're tempted sometimes is to disbelieve God um, and to disbelieve him in difficulty. So the faithfulness of God is put in contrast with the temptation that we face in, in 1 Corinthians. And yet we also understand that God doesn't always explain himself to us. Um, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And sometimes we have to have the humility to recognize that we see through a glass dimly, as Paul would say. We don't see the whole picture. We don't see the whole perspective. And that we need to trust God. We need to be willing to walk out through difficult circumstances, even when we don't see the purpose of what he's doing and what's going on in our life. Well, Asaph comes through these first nine verses, and he is perplexed, and he is struggling and yet, verse 10 begins kind of a turning point for him in this passage. It says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work 
and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and of Joseph. We see a real turning at this point in his perspective on his situation. And what he does is he's able to lift his eyes to see from looking down at himself and looking inward to look up and to see God and to, to remember who God is and to remember what God has done on, his, on behalf of his people. He stops looking at just himself and making himself the, the center of all of his thoughts and of his attention. And he begins to remember throughout history how God has continually acted on behalf of his people. I think that's the same with us today as well. It's easy when we are in difficulty to have that become the focus of of every waking moment of our life. I know there's been times in my life when I have hurt my back and there is nothing that I can do from moment to moment but realize my back hurts and it affects everything that I do. And sometimes emotionally that happens to us as well. When we're in a, a tight spot, when we're in a difficult time in life, that that situation colors and affects everything that we do. And sometimes it's difficult for us to lift our eyes from that difficulty and to remember who God is. And yet that's exactly what Asaph is, is, is doing here, and, and that's what begins to change his disposition toward God. One of, the, one of the truths that we see here is that we cannot allow our circumstances to determine our view of who God is. We have to look at who he is and what he has done and not just our own circumstances. Uh, if, if you look at other places in the Bible, there, there are places where even other great followers have doubted. John the Baptist was recognized as Jesus as the greatest man who was ever born, and yet he gets locked up in prison and he begins to wonder, is Jesus really the, the Messiah? Is he really the real deal? And he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? They ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus said to them, go back and tell John what you've seen, that the blind are given their sight, that the lame are being healed, the deaf are made to hear, the lepers are being healed, and even the dead are brought to life. He appeals to the concrete action of what Jesus is doing. He says, do you see these things that are happening? These are visible evidences of who I am and what I have, that I, that I am who I have said I am. Thomas, doubting Thomas, one of the twelve, doubted the stories that he had heard of the resurrection. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, come Thomas, put your hand in my side and feel the wounds in my hand. Handle me and see. It is I, the same one, risen from the dead. Both of these cases, Jesus appeals to not just believe what I tell you, but believe what I have shown you. Believe what I have done. Believe how I have acted in history. And Asaph is living hundreds of years before Jesus came incarnate to the earth. And yet he has opportunity to look and to see how God has acted in history and to believe in that as well. And he invites us to do the same, to believe, to look and see how he has acted in history and to look and see how he acts in our own life. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we, we talked about this a little bit in our membership class this morning. The, the historical nature of, of 
the gospel, the historical nature of the Bible is important. That the stuff that's written here actually happened and it matters because it's historically verifiable and it bolsters our faith when we know that this is not just stuff that was made up. This is stuff that actually happened that you can go back and verify. It helps us to know everything that has been said is true and we can put our faith in that. And when we don't see in our own circumstances right now, we can trust that God is good. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Truth does not depend on what we had for dinner. You can get a bad feeling in your stomach after dinner and change the way that you think about a lot of things. But truth doesn't doesn't depend on that. Truth is truth yesterday, today and forever. And Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, as Hebrews 13 tells us. James 1.17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We know that he does not change. We know he is the same and that he is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And so if we, we get into a, a time where we can't see exactly what's going on and where we're, we're, we're struggling, we need to trust that he is good. So one of the one of the applications that comes out of that that's kind of counterintuitive, um, but to combat doubt, one of the ways that we do that is that we declare truth in worship. We do what we're doing this morning, even if we don't feel like it, because by saying, by singing, by participating, we are reminding ourselves of the good news of the gospel. That's one of the reasons that I love that we take the Lord's Supper every week is because we get the opportunity, no matter what passage we're preaching through as a church, we get the opportunity to declare the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done for each of us. If you've been here long enough, you remember a long time ago, we preached through a series on worship and we defined worship, uh, at least the first half of that definition. Worship is, do you remember this? Worship is communion with God in which believers by grace center their minds' attention and their hearts' affection on the Lord. And that phrase, centering our minds' attention and our hearts' affection on the Lord, is really what worship is about. And that's exactly what I was talking about a minute ago, what Asaph did. He was able to lift his eyes from just looking at himself to look up and see God, to center his mind and his heart on God, and it changed his perspective. He went from this inward, downward emotional spiral to being able to see who God is and what God has done and to remind himself that God is good. There's another psalm that he wrote that I want you to flip back to, Psalm 73, a couple of pages before 77. This is another psalm of Asaph where he is describing his inward struggle with seeing himself and other godly people struggle and people who don't believe uh, that are rich and have seemingly, seemingly no problems and life is just grand for them. Listen to what he says in verse 1 through 3 as he's envying the wicked. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He'll go through the next 10 or 15 verses and talk about the prosperity of the wicked. Those who don't follow God in any way. Who reject God and yet it seems like everything is grand in their life. Everything is just turned into roses and his life is, is tough and terrible. And then he's able to look back later at that and gain some perspective on that. And look at what he says in verse Starting in verse 21. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Asaph remembers what God has done. He's able, again, to turn his focus from internal to external, to gain some eternal perspective on what God is going to do, and to remember that God is with him, that God is his portion, that God is his guide, is his good shepherd. If we flip back to Psalm 77, we see this perspective at the end of the psalm as well, starting in verse 16. Asaph specifically in this part is remembering God's rescue of his people from Pharaoh in Egypt and how he led them out of the land and through the dry land over the sea, over the Red Sea. This is what it says in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The cloud poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footsteps were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He pictures even the the water that's piled up as as the people were afraid of what was going to happen and that the water itself was afraid of God because God is so great. The waters were afraid when they saw you and that God is, is, was controlling all of nature and bringing all of nature under his subjection and under his rule to serve God's people, to rescue God's people. He said, if, if this is the powerful God that I know, this is the powerful God that I serve, and I can trust him for whatever the issue is in my life. If he can pile the waters up, if he can control the lightning, if he can drown the Egyptian army, then he surely is powerful enough to save me and to rescue me and to be my shepherd. Asaph lived hundreds of years before Jesus came as Messiah. And we have the benefit today of knowing the rest of the story, of having not only the good news of the gospel, and of the, the New Testament, but also having the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to teach us and to remind us of truth, to convict us of sin, to cause us to walk in righteousness. And so one of the, one of the applications of this is we need to remember the truths and the effects of the gospel. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. The gospel is not just a transactional thing that happens once and then, then we move past that onto something else. The, the gospel and the implications of the gospel need to be lived out for us every single day. Every day we need to grow in that good news of what he has done for us and the implications of what that means in our lives. We need to get into community where others are going to speak gospel truths to us when we're wrestling, when we're struggling, when we're having a hard time. We have other folks that can encourage us and remind us and call us to faithfulness, can come alongside us and walk with us. Maybe even sometimes you, not, you might need to get 
some help outside of that. And I want to say um, there can be no no better use of your time sometimes than to go find a good Christian counselor and to spend some time hearing from them um, and and li- let them listen to you and processing things with them um, and and being able to trust God through good counsel. Um, Anna Lauren is affiliated with Anna Lauren Cohn is affiliated with Battlefield Ministries, and there's lots of really solid counselors there that we have referred people to that I have referred folks to, um, and and I would say they're such a great resource, um, as well as. Um, Jim and Bonnie Moore, sitting back here, have done such great work through NAMI and, and, and other uh, opportunities. When, when people have struggled with mental health issues, um, y'all, there's, there's great, great benefit to getting help when you need it and to admitting that you need help and to having people in community uh, come alongside and come around you in the middle of that. Amen. But I want to end this time... Reminding you, I, I say you need to be preaching the gospel to yourself. You need to be reminding others of the gospel in, in community. I want to spend a few minutes actually doing that. So would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8? And, and as we think about difficulty, I want to really briefly remind us that if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, there is good news for you in the midst of trial. Romans 8, 1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I think so often when we get down, when we, when we, when we know we have messed up, or when we are in difficult situations, we look for, okay, what have I done? What have I done that has, has caused this? Maybe what have I brought on myself? Maybe I'm getting the um, retribution. I'm getting the payback for what I've done. And yet, the good news of the gospel tells us that there is no condemnation if we were in Christ Jesus. That we have been set free from sin and death. That that no longer has reign over us. Skip down to verse 12. And Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This passage tells us that we are children and heirs, co-heirs with Jesus, with a Father who loves us and a Holy Spirit who confirms that in us. And yet, even as heirs, sometimes we're called to suffer. And so suffering may be a part of God's marking you as his. Suffering should not surprise us. Biblically, we ought to have a theology of suffering. And that suffering ought to mean that we understand that, um, that even as we suffer, that he is with us. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. Verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul reminds us that any suffering that we have is light compared to what we will experience in glory. Any suffering that we have is light when we weigh it out with what is promised us and the good news of the gospel. And he tells us that all things work together for our good. And we'll see that in just a, in, in a few verses. So we can look forward in hope. We can even groan in hope. As, as Paul talks about the groaning of creation. Um, that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. That as we experience difficulty, as we suffer, we can... We can groan, and yet we can do that with an expectation and a hope that that we will be delivered. Verse 26, he tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Look at this. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those who He called, He also justified. And those who He justified, He also glorified. In this passage, I want you to see, first of all, in verse 26, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. You realize that? That the third person of God intercedes, prays on your behalf. What a privilege that is. In your good days, in your bad days. And because of that, he is working all things for your good. All things. Hard things. Joyous things. Bad things. Good things. He is working all things for your good. He's using all of our trials and all of our difficulties to make us more like Jesus, to bring us um, into conformity of the image of his son. Verse 31 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God, the God who piled up the water and rescued his people, the God who created the one who sustains us, if he is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did you catch that last part? Jesus is also interceding for you. So this morning, 
We have the Holy Spirit interceding for us, and we have Jesus himself who is interceding for us. And the only opinion that matters about who we are and what we've done is God's. And he tells us if God is for us, who can be against us? If God's opinion of us is justified, God's opinion of us is righteous, God's opinion of us is child, God's opinion of us is heir, then who cares what anybody else's opinion is? Verse 35, he says, what, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think you could make a lot longer list than that, but that's a pretty exhaustive list. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Nothing. No difficulty, no accusation, no failure, no hardship. No circumstance that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Uh, I want to close with this story, this illustration. There's a, a guy named William Cooper. His name looks like Cowper. He was a, a good British poet, lived in the 1700s. He was a friend and a, um, I guess, co-writer um, with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And he wrote a lot of different hymns. He also suffered from uh, periodic, I guess, outbreaks of severe depression. And so, although he found refuge in knowing Christ, he also had lots of doubts and he had fears. And he would, all, um, at various times in his life, really wonder, am I too bad? Am I so bad that I can't be saved? Um, and so there were actually a, a few times early in his life that he attempted suicide it caused the end of his brief law career. And on one of those occasions, he, he lived in London. Um, he decided he was going to drown in the Thames River. And so he called this horse-drawn cab, and he told the driver to take him to the Thames River Bridge. And uh, so the driver didn't really understand why, but he, he, they get in, and he starts taking him. And this thick London fog that if you've ever been in London and you have seen this kind of fog, you know what I'm talking about. This fog descends on the city that's so thick that you can't see anything of where you're going. And so he rides around for a while, and the driver's lost, and they don't know where they're going, and eventually the horse stops, and he realizes he's at his front door. And so that night he goes in, and he actually reads Psalm 77 that we've been looking at, and he writes this hymn. Um, it's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. I didn't get too emotional until I, I, I'm standing up here and I'm seeing all of, I've seen different emotions out here. And so I'm trying not to make too much eye contact with all of you guys. Um, but this, this hymn, I just want to read the verses to you. And we're going to sing this in a minute because this is something that I think uh, this particular hymn has become powerful in the lives of many of us in this church.
and it, it expresses uh, the message of what I'm trying to say from Psalm 77. He says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So as we wait for the day that we have faith that is made sight, that he does make everything plain, we wait with expectation. We wait with hope. And even in the midst of difficult days, we cry out to God who hears and who does respond to his people. And he is working all things for our good and for his glory. So I want to invite you to respond to that in worship. And this morning, I also want to invite you, if, if you don't know God in that way, if Jesus is not your Savior, if you can't cry out to him in, in, in hopeful expectation, I would love to, to talk to you, to pray with you, and to help you be able to cry out to him with a hopeful expectation. So as we stand just a moment to, to sing and to pray, uh, I and some of our pastors will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you about anything. We'd love to talk to you about anything. We, we primarily want you to respond to God and however he is speaking to you this morning. Would you pray with me and we'll respond in worship? God, you are good. You are good when things are great with us. You are good when things are terrible and when we can't see through the fog. So help us to lift our heads. Help us to lift the heads of others that we're in community with to see you and your glory, to remember the truth of who you are and what you have done for us. Jesus, thank you that you came and lived the life that we could not live. And you died in our place and for our sin. And you were raised so that we could have hope. We could have purpose. We could not only be declared righteous, but we could be declared sons and daughters. Help us to walk in that truth today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.